Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. I want to continue on the series that we, we started a few weeks ago, and that is on escaping Egypt, um, restoring the identity and migration, um, the restoration of identity and migration principles, exiting Egypt without fear to get back into what God originally designed for you to be and do. Um, and here we're going to, in the series, talk about a number of principles surrounding Israel's exodus from Egypt. The escape from Egypt um, has attendant with it serious important principles for any migratory process. So whenever you are in transition, everyone say transition. So whenever you leave, one phase of God's purposes, and you go into another, it's very important to observe the principles of the Passover. Because Passover was celebrated on the night that they left. And Exodus 12 is our primary chapter. It's literally a whole chapter we are going to decode. Mark read part of it today. We haven't even got into the kernel of the series yet. Everything I've taught up to this point has been introductory, right? But when we, it's necessary for this introduction because you've got to understand what you're leaving. You've got to understand what, what Egypt represents. You've got to understand what, it, what, what its purpose is, how it limits, how it stifles. And what then are the attendant principles with Passover that one needs to observe in one's life Whenever God breaks you out of some degree of limitation, which is Egypt, some degree of bondage, and you break out and you en route to where? Canaan, which publicly was the inheritance of Israel. So when we look at the Exodus, we spiritually can perceive of it as follows. There's the release of an identity and purpose. Because God said to Pharaoh, Release my firstborn son. If you don't, I will kill your firstborn. So release my firstborn. So the coming out of Israel, out of Egypt, was the coming out from an inaccurate identity, which was slavery, into a preordained identity, which is firstborn sonship. So um, this is still under the series of firstborn sonship. We're picking up the theme again. And I've taught you much about what firstborn sonship represents. But so long as the son is in the wrong mindset, Egypt, what he represents will never come to, to fullness. So long as he's assailed by the principles governing the Egyptian environment. So coming out of Egypt means dismantling certain Egyptian mindsets or principles in one's life that keep one captive. For Israel, it was a pharaoh. It was a heroic system of manipulation, of exploitation, of domination that subjected them to 430 years of slavery. God says, I'm breaking that because I want my people to know who they are in me. All they knew all their lives was slavery, but I have sonship for them and not just sonship, firstborn. Everyone say firstborn. Firstborn sonship. And God said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might serve me or that they might worship me. So there are two elements of foot here, both identity and destiny. In coming out of Egypt, you come out of a wrong thinking about who you are and you come out of a wrong emphasis. For them, it was making bricks to build pyramids or to build towns and cities, right? Energy, energy was used for the wrong purpose. So energy needs to be um, uh, tailored or focused upon the right thing. 
I was saying this when I was talking about the boys a moment ago. Jesus had zeal. He had he governed by jealousy for his father's purposes. He had zeal. And whenever he saw, especially within the context of his father's house, that was not being um, administrated the way God the Father would want it, he quickly stepped in to restore the order. Right? He would quickly step in to restore the order. Here's the point. Um, the two boys um, are full of life. Now listen to me carefully. Saul of Tarsus was zealous. He said in his testimony, in one of his letters, or in the book of Acts before the Sanhedrin, when he's giving defense, he said, I was zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Remember he said that? Right? So he thought that by persecuting Christians, before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus, who killed Christians. And he killed Christians being thoroughly convinced he was serving God with all of his heart. For his mind, he could not see how that these people of the way, they were not called Christians in his time, they were called the people of the, the way. Jesus said, I am the way. So his followers were called people of the way. He thought, who, he thought that the, the church was some new sect, was a cult that was diametrically opposed to everything in the Mosaic Covenant of which he was a Pharisee and not just a Pharisee. Paul said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So Paul is not just an ordinary Pharisee who was bent not only on upholding the law, fulfilling it. In fact, you know what Paul's testimony was this. He said, as touching the law, I was blameless. Paul was a very serious man about his service to God. Even when he was in error, he did the error with all of his heart. You know, there's some people that are wrong. They, they are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. Not so? And when he killed Christians, he says, I was zealous. I thought of the, of the, the traditions of my forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I thought I was doing God a favor. But what did God do on the Damascus road? Paul was going to Damascus to do what? The Bible says, and the church suffered great persecution by the hands of Saul. And the Bible says he was bent. Read Acts 9. He was bent. I can see him with a horse going to Damascus. I'm going to kill more Christians. He was, he was a man with a mission. Eh? A man with a mission. And what does God do? Lightning from heaven strikes the guy off his horse. A bright light appears. Jesus speaks to him. Saul, Saul. Why do why? Saul, Saul. His response is, who are you? Lord, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Saul suddenly realizes by revelation, as an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, realizes that the thing that he was, the thing that he was destroying was the thing that God was intent on building. So there was zeal, there was fervor, but it was not, it was misdirected. That is why, listen carefully, God in the whole Bible never ever used a lazy person. Check it out. Check out any major Old Testament personality. Somebody was always busy with something and God intervenes and he redirects the energy. He redirects the zeal, the, the, the focus and the, the passion. I want to encourage you and pray prophetically over this house. That everyone in this house finds purpose. That the desire you have must not be misdirected. It mustn't be directed towards the wrong thing. In fact, there are some using desire, fighting what God is building. Persecuting, thinking that they're doing God a favor, yet because of blindedness of spirit, are literally fighting what God intends to build. Amen. So I pray that your desire be restored to its original intent. You are waking up every day as an Israelite under Egyptian slavery, building bricks, being taken commands by an Egyptian taskmaster with a whip lashing you. You're serving that system 
you, your father, your great-grandfather, your great-great-great-grandfather, your 430 years of family history, purpose, lost energy, totally focused on building the wrong thing. Yet God's saying, enough is enough. Can you hear what the Spirit is saying to you? God is saying to you, take your talent. Take your time. Take your energy. Take your skill set. Take what you are good at and don't let the world exploit it. Yes, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we all have work. We, we work for, for bosses. Some of us run own businesses. And we work in the world, but your work in the world, your, your, your skill set and talents in the world, is purely an excuse by God to visualize himself in your domain. God put you as a teacher in a school. Your skill set is to teach because God wants to presence himself in and through you in that sphere. That is all true. And you must use your talents to represent God fully wherever you are. But also, when it comes to the house of God, you relate to a spiritual father who has other sons. So you relate to him and the family because that's the house of God. In that economy... Purpose is expressed too. If you're part of that community, here's the point. If you're part of that community, I want to encourage you to not stand aloof from the purpose covering the house. Take whatever time, even if it's time. If all the resource you have is time, you might have not a lot of kwacha, mucha. But if whatever resource you have is, I have time, I have, let me devote that. To purpose, right? And I really sense this is this is um, what's going to be required of us in in the next phase to come. Do you know Moses? I, I may teach this later on. Was Moses a mighty man? Come on, talk to me. Was he mighty? The Bible says he was mighty in two respects. Moses, a man mighty in words and deeds, right? Mighty in words and deeds. He was a mighty man. Did God perform mighty miracles by his hand? Yes or no? Right? I mean, who can boast of walking through a sea with, with walls standing up on either side of you? And the ground that you walk is not even wet. It's dry. Who can boast? Not few, very few men on the earth can boast to doing that. Right? And there are countless other miracles that he, that he did. One of the Psalms says this. He performed mighty deeds by the hand of Moses. Mighty deeds by the hand of Moses. Now put yourself in Moses' shoes. If you were Moses, you would have thought, I'm the man. I'm God's medium for the hour. God uses me. Yet the Bible says Moses did not think that. The Bible is conscious to reference that Moses was the meekest man in the entire earth. Now that's a great comparison. I can say that maybe Mark is the meekest man in his family. Or Mark is the meekest man, let's say, in, in Mirbank. Right? That will be a great commendation, not so? If you are the meekest in a whole... But when God is of Moses, hey, take everybody in the whole planet, not just the area. This man, Moses, is the meekest I can find in the entire world. Right? Meekness, you know, if I were God... And if I was choosing someone to lead 600, the Bible says 600,000 came out originally on that night. Men, not counting women and children. So obviously more, much more and not also counting the Ereb, the mixed multitude that went out with them. I, I would think if you add all the, the factors, there must, have been, there must have been about 2 million people. Who would like to lead 2 million? People for anything, never mind the wilderness. You want to be a leader of two million, whatever. Right? It's a difficult task, yeah? So Moses is a very, he's an iconic leader. I would have chosen, if I was God, I would have chosen a very, very outspoken man. I would have chosen a confident man. I would have chosen maybe somebody about forthright. You've got to lead all these people. God, God, God works opposite to the way men think. God goes with the meekest guy around. Not just the meekest in the, in the land, the meekest in the whole earth. That is why it's not about your, your grace in terms of your personality. 
It's the grace of God that is in you. God takes Paul, a man trained under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the greatest scholar and teacher of his time. And Paul trained under him. Paul was an educationalist. He was a man that was highly astute in, and learned in both secular things and in, and in spiritual things. Peter was unschooled. Peter didn't pass 10 at 5. Peter flunked school. Peter is the fisherman from down the road. Both men are apostles before God. Both men. That is why it's not, it's not your training naturally that qualifies you anything before God. It's the grace of God in you. Not so? Both men wrote epistles. Letters that are part of the canon of the scriptures today. But you know, God in his brilliance, Paul who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says, of the tribe of the stock of Benjamin. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He says, a Benjamite, son of the, of the right hand. God takes Paul and he makes him an apostle to Gentile barbarians. And he takes Peter, who doesn't know a thing about anything, and makes him an apostle to educated Jews. If I was God, if I was doing the selection, I would have placed Paul. Paul, I send you to the Jewish community. Peter, you can go speak to the barbarians. You like cutting off ears, etc. You're a rough and tough man. You go there. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the wisdom of God, that's why the Bible says, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. Right? So Moses is your meekest man. And by the way, a synonym, a synonym for meek, is gentle. We must learn to be gentle. Tell your neighbor you need more gentleness. Do you know what gentle is? It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. There are nine fruits of the Spirit. Gentle, to be gentle, is one of the, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working the character of Christ within your, within your life. So Moses, yes, Moses, meek. Now listen carefully. God discounts or overlooks the, the natural negatives, the disadvantageous factors attendant with his personality. He can't even speak properly. It's a stammering problem. Right? But he must lead all of these people. God gives him a spokesperson in the person of Aaron to accommodate and compensate for that. That is why if you are willing and able... No matter what things you lack, if you say yes to the task, God will fill in the gaps. So I'll encourage us all, don't look at yourself this morning and say, I can't because of X, Y, Z. If you hear the call, or if you see the need, and if you say, God, I want to respond to that, I will arrive. God will see your heart and God will attend you with grace. God will attend you with grace. But I was saying about Moses. I got carried away there. The Bible says in one of the Psalms, Moses, by the, might, by the hand of Moses, notice, by the hand of Moses, the Lord performed many mighty works. Why? He said this, the Bible says, because God remembered, God remembered his covenant and his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Right? Now Moses is here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are thousands of years removed. A huge time, time gap between these two people. So think about it. Yes, Moses, thousands of years before is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is doing mighty hands through Moses' hands. Why? Because he's remembering a promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? That is why your focus and activity here, like Moses, as a son, must be thoroughly connected to a fatherly promise or to a prophetic promise in God. You can't do your own thing in a vacuum. What you do bears reference to what God promised somebody else years before. Now, in the context of this local house, you are part of this local house. Let me prophesy of you. God can perform mighty works by your hands too. If you take your zeal, your energy, your passion, and connected to the prophetic purpose that God has in this house. 
that I carry in my spirit. Think about this. Moses is powerless if he's not seeking to fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham. But the moment Moses can connect his, his, his passion, his zeal, his sense of responsibility to what God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this man rises up, yes, meek, weak, whatever, gentle, but God gives him huge responsibility because he takes his desire and he says, God gave Father Abraham a promise. Remember the promise was in Genesis 15? I'll read it next week to you. Time won't permit it. God said this to Abraham. And there's not, Abraham didn't have an Isaac. No nation is born. Just Abraham, no children. Yet in Genesis 12 already, he's, he's promised he'll be a father of many nations. Right? He's going to be blessed. God says to him, and the nation that shall be born to you will be incarcerated, subject to slavery for 400 years. God tells Abraham this before the nation was even a reality. But after 400 years, I will deliver them with a mighty hand. Now, at that time, Kairos has dawned upon that to happen. And here Moses stands on the scene of time. And what Moses has to do is to connect to a desire to fulfill what God has given to Abraham. That is why I believe there's no place for personal ambition in the house of God. You connect to patriarchal destiny. Amen? There's no, there's, there's no such a thing as my personal vision. If you're part of the family of God, everybody has one agenda. We fulfill the mandate of God attendant with the house, given and vested in through the leader of the house. You connect with that grace. You connect with that purpose. I want to encourage you. God will do mighty things by your hand too. And what you'll be doing in your private personal world will not be dislocated from what is core to the house. It will be an expression of the purpose in the house. Not so? It's important for you to understand these variables. Because people want to jump straight into Passover and say, let's, let's discuss Exodus 12. Let's get into the principles. Let's get out of Egypt. But getting out of Egypt is not just a plain and simple thing. I want you to position yourself like a Moses. Position yourself in purpose. Amen? Don't, don't let um, anything discourage you that you are going through. Don't let it. Say, God, and you know what I sense? That this is the time. This is the kairos. It might be crisis. But every crisis can become a kairos moment. Not so. It was crisis for the Egyptians. But it was kairos for the Israelites, and I want to encourage you, I sense so strongly, this could be your greatest exodus. This moment could be your greatest escape from things that are limiting you and binding you and holding you back. Lock into purpose. More than ever before, I say this publicly, I'm going to lock into my father, Thamonidu's purpose. For I realize God will do mighty things through my hand if like he did with Moses in reference to Abraham, if I position myself to, to bring to pass the mandate, the promise that God gave him. Not so? Sons fulfill the visions of their fathers. Remember this chapter in the book of Ruth, Manila wrote? There's a chapter entitled, Sons Fulfill the Vision of Their, their Fathers. Ruth doesn't have any ambition but to ensure that Naomi's welfare is taken care of her land is restored. She doesn't lose the plot of land. And that she is re, uh, restitution takes place entirely in her life. And I want to encourage you. Elisha doesn't have his own agenda. Do you know? Elisha has one purpose. Whatever anointing you have, my father Elijah, I want double that so I can carry on and fulfill the mandate that you had. Do you know when Elijah died, there was one outstanding matter he did not fulfill that he was commanded by God to fulfill. It was the anointing of one of the kings. I can't remember his name offhand now. Remember after he fled from Jezebel and after God restored him, put him to sleep, resuscitated him, encouraged him, God gave him an instruction. There. He says, go. And there were three instructions. Go anoint, uh, I think it was uh, Jehu 
And there were two other kings. Elijah in his lifetime only fulfilled two of those responsibilities. When Elisha came on the scene, one of the first things he did was to fulfill the outstanding matter in reference to his father, Elisha. And by the way, he didn't do it personally. He sent a son of his. So that son, the third now in the line, is fulfilling a promise being given to two fathers before him. Amen? I want to encourage you. Find purpose. Uh, Moses leaving Egypt, leading Israel out of Egypt, is not a man doing his own thing. He's simply a strategic role player that locked into a grand purpose far bigger than him. And when he prioritized it, God gave him great success. He lived a life relevant to God. Moses did not just exist. That's why the man could take faith steps. The Bible says he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. He left as seeing him who is, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I pray this morning your, your faith, your sight, which is faith, sight into the unseen realm, your faith will be unlocked to see what is the purpose of God attendant with our local community here. Amen? So tell your neighbor, escape Egypt. Moses' purpose would have been misdirected. All he knew was Pharaoh's courts for 40 years, not so. All he knew was that domain. But the Bible says when he became of age, that was 40 years old. Becoming of age. Tell your neighbor, you need to become of age. It's like, you know, it's like, okay, Moses, we can excuse you, you're 23. You've been raised as a prince in Pharaoh's courts. Moses disconnects from that realm. The Bible says he refused to be called a son. You must refuse sonship from the wrong domain. I refuse to be fathered by a system that keeps me in bondage. Right? I disconnect from that realm. And the Bible says I, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the children of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, which was for a season, considering the reproach of Christ to be far greater worth and the riches of Egypt. He made a decision. But he made that decision, the Bible says, and Moses, when he became of age. In other words, it's a lovely statement in the book of Hebrews there. It's when you mature. Do you know when you mature, it's like when the lights come on? Eh? I wish I knew five years ago what was attendant with my spiritual father, like I know now. I always knew it was something powerful, something substantial. But now I have greater clarity, greater sight, greater understanding of what it represents. And I'm saying the same here locally. I'm saying plug into purpose and let the will, uh, the purposes of God prevail concerning us. I don't know why we went in that vein this morning. I haven't started preaching yet. <laughs> I need to open my notes and get to it. But really, maybe since this is the directive of the Lord, misguided purpose needs to be arrested. Misguided expression of energy and zeal needs to be harnessed. It needs to be redirected to that which God has called you to do. Amen? What is life? What is life if not for but to fulfill God's purposes? What's the point in living for 80 years and not having... Uh, contributed anything to God's purposes in the world or globally. Amen? So I want to encourage you, become a person and a, a, a person of, of purpose. Amen? Let me just quickly, in the time remaining, I, I shared with you six things in the past few weeks that Egypt represents. I should have focused now just quickly, just for about 20 minutes, on Egypt's representation of fatherlessness. Egypt's representation from father, of fatherlessness. So exiting Egypt then can also be viewed like a people exiting fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. Um, we were talking, Earl and I were talking, I think yesterday or the day before, long discussion about fatherlessness. And we were saying, we concluded, things we've known, but we're just talking around the theme of our fatherlessness 
is the problem underneath every other problem. Samson Lund said that. Fatherlessness is the problem underneath every other problem. Here's the thing. Every societal ill, everything wrong in society, from prison to, to malfunction in system, from indiscipline to irresponsibility, from murder to all sorts of crime, um, to, to, to people not fulfilling destiny, to people having a wrong image of who they are, a dented self-worth, every problem can be traced back to the fact that that person has got a father vacuum. Fatherlessness is the problem underneath every other problem. 90% of people in death row in one of the prisons in the States all testified either to an absent father or no father or the wrong representation of a father that abused them. And they landed up there. So the father was either non-existent had a father but was never around, absent fathering. Right? Had one but was abusive. And it caused a whole lot of issues. Now, let's go to Genesis 45, verse 8. Because some of you need to open your Bibles. So now you say to me, you came to church, we never opened the Bible. But I've been talking the Bible the whole while now. Okay. Right? So Genesis 48, 45, verse 8. There's a, a lovely portion here that helps you understand... Why Egypt changes in character? Why does Egypt change in nature? I'll, I'll explain in, in a moment. It's Genesis 45 and verse 8. Right? Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now Joseph is speaking to his brothers. He forgives them. He tells them, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh. And, to, the, and be, to be lord of all his household and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now this phrase is very important. Joseph is saying, God made me a father to who? To Pharaoh. Then the question is, was Pharaoh fathered? Yes or no? Yes. Come on, answer me. Was Pharaoh fathered according to this verse? Who was Pharaoh's father? Joseph. Who was leading Egypt? Who was the head? Pharaoh. Who was in the side speaking to the man and fathering him as he led? Joseph. Joseph came into favor with him because Joseph knew, remember Joseph knew what dreams he dreamed. Joseph provided the interpretation and an economic solution to the impending uh, uh, Years of bounty and the seven years of famine and what to do. When Pharaoh looked at the wisdom of this man, the Bible says he made him head of everything. Right? So much so that everyone in Egypt bowed or genuflected whenever Joseph walked around. He was a man of such respect. Pharaoh elevated him. But God gave favor to Joseph for one specific reason. The head the secular governmental head of Egypt needs to be fathered by you. And let me just say this. God's going to raise many sons in society. Some of you will be positioned. Please hear me. Some of you will be positioned even if you are female. This is not about gender. God will position you in key strategic places to influence key people. They'll have the position, but you will be influencing them with kingdom principles, with kingdom uh, ideals that will be expressed in and through their rule. Right? Now the land of Egypt, I'm just trying to find the verse, I got it somewhere. The land of Egypt was, was good for Israel. Now listen to me as I say this. Egypt was very good to Israel. If Egypt did not exist, Israel would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Why? Because Joseph being there, fathering uh, Pharaoh, instituted an economic policy that ensured that Egypt not only survives the famine, but becomes the storehouse of grain and provision for every other 
nation in the entire world at that point in time. But Joseph played a key part in his counsel that he gave. So he fathered Pharaoh. And you know that, just look at Genesis 41, go back a few, a few chapters. When this was so, when this was so, Egypt, Egypt's nature and character took on the intent that God had for it. Right? It became a, a place of safety, a place of provision. In fact, do you know who made, who made Egypt so rich? Joseph. Because when they had all this grain in all these silos, and the Bible says this, people from all over the world trekked to Egypt to buy grain. And some of them even traded with their land to get grain. So Egypt amasses this wealth and becomes the greatest global empire in its day simply because a firstborn, say firstborn, Joseph is firstborn. He replaces Reuben, remember? Yeah? He, has, he has Manasseh and Ephraim as sons. Manasseh or Ephraim will become his, his firstborn too. So he's a firstborn in Jacob's family, positioned in a key position in society or in government. He ensures the purposes of God triumph not for his local church only. Joseph is in such a key position. He is placed as a firstborn son to ensure that God's purposes globally triumph. Think bigger than church. Think bigger than church. You are here, you must be faithful here and fulfill purpose here. But I'm saying to you, there's a sphere out there also that God has in store for you. And I speak prophetically to us. God can position some of you before key men. You will not have the position, but it will be as though you are ruling because you are fathering the ruler. Hmm? You are the influencer. And so, so long as Egypt is fathered, Egypt fulfills the purposes of God. Genesis 41, 55 says, 55 to 57. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. The man got great power. Eh? Whatever he says, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened. Now, notice where is the famine spread? Face of the earth. The whole known world back then is subject to seven years of famine. Only one spot on the planet that can give you grain to survive. Egypt, with the firstborn son fathering the leader of the land, that ensured all of this. Then it says this. Then Joseph opened the storehouses and he sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people all the people of all the earth, everyone say all the earth. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Because the famine was severe in all the land. Now go quickly to chapter 47. When he reconciled with his brothers. Oh, by the way, Canaan too is suffering the famine. So yeah, all the brothers back home in Canaan, in Israel, that hated him, that um, betrayed him, that sold him. Now he's the big mfundis, he's the ruler. <laughs> Guess what they must do also, like every other nation in the earth? They must also go to Egypt to get some pro-neutral grain. Use grain to make pro-neutral or some breakfast. They come there too. And I'll I'll just cut short the drama. Long and short of it, he he exposes who he is to them after, after a long process. And they are reconciled and there's wonderful union and reconciliation. Genesis 47 verse 6. The land of Egypt, like Joseph says to his brothers, he's going to give them great favor. Not so? Favor. He says, the land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land and let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Everyone say Goshen. Listen carefully. Goshen, traditionally, 
and historically, Egypt was the best provided section of Egypt. It's like after the famine abated, um, and now Pharaoh says to Joseph, okay, you, you've reconciled with your family. Deal kindly with them. Give them whatever you want to. You're in charge. Joseph shows him favor, giving him the best, lush, best place to live. It's Goshen. Right? But Goshen is simply, is simply soon going to become jail. It's going to imprison them for 430 years. Here's the point. Listen carefully. The Bible says, I won't need the reference because of time. The Bible says that a, when this Pharaoh dies, the Pharaoh dies, that a new Pharaoh, Joseph dies also, right? a new Pharaoh came on the scene that did, here's the, the phrase I like, it says, that did not know Joseph. And he began to be threatened, it says, by the growth of the sons of Israel. Everyone say, did not know Joseph. Now, what the, who was Joseph? Joseph was a father to Pharaoh. Let's substitute. Instead of saying, did not know Joseph, say this, did not know fathering. So, so long as Pharaoh is fathered, Egypt fulfills purpose. But the moment an, a Pharaoh comes that doesn't know the fathering grace of a firstborn son of God, the land changes its agenda. The land that once provided for you now becomes the land that starts to imprison you. The land that now start, favored you at one point will now become the land that treats you as a, as a slave. Right? Remember last week I said this to you. Did Joseph know that they must go back to Canaan before he died? What did he say to them? He says, guys, we're going to be out of here soon. Don't dig your roots in too deep in this Goshen. And he said, okay, uh, you, uh, I will not survive to see this day. But when you do go, take my bones, my coffin, take it out with you. I want to go back to the land of my forefathers. Right? So listen carefully. Here's the principle. When an environment is not fathered, that environment changes character. When an environment is not fathered, that environment loses purpose. Similarly too, here's the point. When a person breaks with fathering, you will notice a character or a character change in the person will start to take place. Question, did Egypt change character? Yes, the land of provision became the land of enslavement. There was a change in both character and purpose. Once fathering is severed, you will notice subtle changes. Almost, um, uh, you, you can't, um, inexplicable is the word I'm looking for. Unexplainable, inexplicable changes in the person's character. Right? The moment you break from fathering. That's why I want to encourage you. Don't break from the principle of fathering. You all need a spiritual father to watch over your souls. To shape you into the nature of Christ. When that uh, uh, is severed, you will notice sudden and drastic changes in behavior, in thought, in priority. Right? And when you trace it back at the bedrock of it, it's either dishonor for fathering or severing off from fathering. When Adam disconnects from God, his father... What the first emotion he felt was fear. Do you know that? God came to him. He says, I feared because I hid myself from you. Right? Did not know the love of his, of, his, of his father. I want to encourage you never ever to sever from not just your spiritual father, from him, God, who is your father. The moment, let me just say this, and you will be, don't, you will be perceptible, you will be perceptive rather, to perceptible changes of, of in, in, maybe in your spouse or in your children, of behavior, of character, of emphasis, of purpose, of priority, and then you'll know of a certainty in your heart. There's probably a subtle disconnect from the, from the principle of Father. Firstly, from God the Father, because let me just say this, I personally believe every disconnect from an authentic, valid, spiritual father is nothing more 
and a reflection from a disconnect from Him who is the Father of Spirits. God our Father. Hmm? The Father of all. Over all, in all, and, and through all. Now in closing, you want to say in closing, go to Exodus chapter 1. Let's get right back. I'm dying to get into Exodus chapter 12, but all of this is essential background. Amen? I want to read through this, make one or two statements, then close. Amen? Joseph died. Oh, sorry, verse 6. Joseph died, and all the brothers, and all of that generation. So Reuben, Simeon, the whole lot of them, all dead, right? They have, obviously, sons, and they, each one of them is developed into a tribe almost. But they're all not tribal yet. The tribal constitution of Israel is not yet arranged. They're all just a loose bunch of, of people living in Egypt. Verse 7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Right? What did God promise to Abraham? I will make of you a great nation. The prophecy is coming to pass in a land far removed from the environment in which the prophecy was given. The prophecy was given in Canaan. The prophecy is coming to pass in, in Egypt. Right? And it says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If I were you, are right in brackets, did not know fathering. Because Joseph was a father to the king. Was a father to to Pharaoh. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. So is this guy insecure? He starts to say, Hey, if we let this bunch grow the way they are growing, hey, we are in serious trouble here. Right? So Israel starts to grow. Remember the original bunch all dead. Joseph, Reuben, Simeon, all dead, all off the scene. It's the offspring now that starts to, to grow. Verse 10. He says, come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, fight against us, and depart from the land. It's amazing. Whenever you are fatherless, you start to behave like an orphan. You start to make decisions like this, based upon your own insecurity. Right? Was he insecure? Reason? Why, was, why is he insecure? does not know the principle of fathering. Right? He starts to behave in a very uh, authentic type uh, of behavior. So they appointed, verse 11, okay, this guy's insecure, and so he doesn't know fathering, and he, he, he starts to grapple at straws, I call it. What, what must I do to ensure our welfare? What must I do now to ensure my survival? And I want to encourage you, brethren. Your fa- I said this to you repeatedly last week. God, your father, will not fail you. I'm saying it again. God, your Father, will not fail you. Don't disconnect from Him. The moment you disconnect from Father, you start to live in the world, and anything that you perceive will threaten your existence, you start to position yourself against and the survival of the fittest as far as you are concerned. But when you are connected to your Father, He will take care of you. Nothing in this life can threaten you. Remind your neighbor, God will not fail us. God will not fail us. Don't disconnect from God the Father. What the Bible says to not be uh, in Matthew 6. Uh, how does it go again? Take no thought for your life. What you will eat, drink, or wear. Right? For is life more important than these things? Consider the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. They don't sow, neither reap. Yet who? Your heavenly Father takes care of them. How much more important are you? Amen? Just affirm to your neighbor, Father takes care of us. Father takes care of us. Nobody must live life here in this congregation in insecurity. You have a heavenly Father that loves you and He will take care of you. Amen? Just maintain the intimacy of your relationship with Him. He will not fail you. Can't get that verse, those, that phrase out of my head been ringing in my mind almost daily. God is saying, I will not fail you. I will not fail you. Be faithful. I will not. I will not fail you. Verse 7. Verse 11. They appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, 
and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more, here's the thing. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out. Tell you never thank God for your affliction. <laughs> Do you know affliction is the environment for growth? So you will never grow if you don't have some kind of opposition. I said it in Facebook the other day. Someone wrote it. They wrote, you will never grow until you have some kind of opposition. Right? The moment you have opposition, even weight training, even resistance training for growth, you need some resistance. If you've got to peck on the, the, the weights to get some kind of response from this bicep, right? it's not going to respond without resistance. Your affliction is your greatest opportunity to grow. That's why Paul says, I will gladly rejoice when I, in my trials. Amen? Think about it. We're in a trying year this year. My hand is high. right? Guess what? I've grown more this year in most other years, remarkably. I look back and I say, thank God for the trial. It was an opportunity to grow. Do you know I learned this in the week from one of the TV preachers? I think it's from uh, Joseph Prince, a short clip. He said in the, in the Chinese language, there is no Chinese equivalent for the English crisis. So if you're talking Chinese, anything in Japanese, and you want to say crisis to the Pahewin crisis, their equivalent for the English crisis, both in Japanese and Chinese, is the word opportunity. So what is a crisis to you is an opportunity to the Chinese. Guess who is flourishing in every nation of the earth today? Guess who is in every nook and cranny? Buildings going up. There's one right to the... Yeah, in our main street... There's one, guess, when the, when the world is in economic crisis, they think opportunity. Right? Your crisis is your greatest opportunity. Your affliction is your greatest uh, push to grow. Next time you think of your, some affliction hits you, Brad's trial, you must say to Rita, this is a workout, some resistance training. We're going to come out stronger than we've ever had before. We're going to come out more, much more solid than we, if we position ourselves correctly in this. God's purposes for our lives will thrive. Not so? Amen? I can see some people going to the gym. <laughs> follow me as I follow Christ. <laughs> when I do it, I'll tell you. <laughs> Amen. Okay, that was a side thing. Let's just go quickly. Verse 13. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor vigorously or rigorously. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, all kinds of labor in the field, all the labors which they had rigorously imposed upon them. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew. Here's the thing I want to stress. Check the wicked agenda of this Pharaoh. He calls all the midwives of the Israelites. Midwives are those nurses that help to give birth when the ladies are pregnant to deliver the child. He, call, he calls them and he says, uh, what verse are we in? The king of Egypt spoke to all the Hebrew midwives. Not the Egyptian midwives. The Hebrew midwives. One of them whose name was Shipra and the other's name was Pua. Hey, hectic names these people. Shipra and Pua. Right? Please don't call your child Pua. <laughs> okay. and, and, and he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and see them upon their birth stool. You know, they use those stools to give birth. That was the technology of that time. Right? If it is a son, put him to death. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. What do sons have? The seed for procreation. So the, 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 the new Pharaoh orders all the midwives. If you are helping these Hebrew Israelite women to give birth, and while they are on the bird stool, and you see it's a son, kill the child immediately. But if it's a daughter, no problem. You see, the enemy always wants to kill seed. Procreation. Now, here's verse 17 that I really like, in, uh, 16 and 17. He said, but, but the midwives, I like this, feared God. 
Tell your neighbor, don't lose your fear of God. This this was Moses' first act of God for his preservation. The Nile was the second, throwing in the basket. This was the first act to ensure Moses would survive. The Bible says the midwives feared God. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? I like their response. The midwives say to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. How is that? These, you know, if you're a colloquial, he's saying to them, these women are not ordinary women, these, these Israelites. At the point of birth, it's no long stories, you know. The excuse they give to the, the Pharaoh, it wasn't an excuse, it was a reality. We can't even get to the baby. Because the process of giving birth to sonship, think spiritually and not think naturally. The process of activating and giving birth to sonship is such a rapid one, we can't intercept the process. We can't fight what God is doing, because what God is doing, He's doing it at such an accelerated pace. I declare no weapon will be formed, that is formed, against God's purposes for this house will succeed. The pace is far too rapid for there to be an impediment, for there to be a stop in the process. And notice here, Let me just read the, and then we'll wrap up. It says, verse 20, So God was good to the midwives. I like this. And the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. And he established what for them? Households for them. I like that. The midwives, he established households, domains of influence, structures through which his purposes can be realized. And then, then the second, Pharaoh's second port of call is, he commanded all his people saying, every son who is born to you, you are to cast into the Nile. Every daughter you are to keep alive, etc., etc. Let me give you the names in closing of these two women. Shipra and Pua. Shipra means prolific. I like the meaning of a name. Prolific. It also means to procreate. Procreate. You know what prolific means? English terms is generally it means to produce much fruit and very quickly. So how can Shipra act in contradiction to who she is? Her identity and nature means to procreate, to be this growth, this 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 fertility. And so she does not act in contradiction to who he is. And may I appeal to some of us here this morning? You know the right thing to do. Don't act in contradiction to what you know to be true. God has put within you a desire um, to be faithful, to be too mature. Don't act in... You know what the Bible says about God? Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself. In other words, He cannot act in contradiction to who He is. Don't deny yourself. Don't deny the nature of God within you. Don't kill sonship when you should be fostering its production at an increased rate. May I, may I appeal to all of us this morning, fast track your own sonship maturity. Become a shipra in the spirit. I'll go so far as to say, become a shipra in the house. You become a midwife in the house. When you see other people are struggling to come into sonship, you come alongside them and say, my name is Shipra. I don't make shipwreck, I make shipra. I am here to help you with issues of sonship. If you're battling with how to position yourself in reference to a spiritual father, look at my example. Copy me, follow me as I copy Christ. If you're battling with how to prioritize purpose, look at me. If you're battling with faithfulness, look at me, copy my example. I'm here to midwife you, fast track your own sonship. The agenda of the enemy I hear in the spirit, is a heroic, evil one, saying, kill sonship in the house. Destroy sonship in the house. Take what they've been building, and uh, for sonship we've been building a long time now, take what they've been trying to build, and make shipwreck of it. 
But the shipras stand up and say, no, I can't act in contradiction to who I am. My very nature is prolific. My, my, my very DNA is to ensure that I produce, I procreate the ideal of sonship in the house. Amen? So tell your neighbor, be a shipra. But don't make shipwreck. Poor, poor means childbearing. Now, same thing. How can she kill when her name is to produce? Her name means childbearing or joy of the parents. Joy of the parents. Splendor. Her name also means splendid. Her name also means light. Poor. I don't like the sound of it, but I like the meaning of it. Amen. <laughs> so can I appeal to you, become a poor in the house. Become a shipra in the house. Be that for your own life and be that for, for others. Remember just one verse in closing, Isaiah 49 verse 15 says, Your builders hurry, your devastators will depart from you. Remember we read this verse a few years ago, Isaiah 49 verse 15. Your builders hurry. And when the builders are hurrying, what do the devastators do? The devastators depart. So what is the antidote to devastation? Building. And not just building. In other words, build, bana. The word ben is derived from there. So who builds the house? Sons build the, the house. Sons build. Right? Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that. That builders, so sons build the house. And I want to encourage you. The word hurry here means or implies greater fervency, greater acceleration. The build, when the builders hurry, the, devastating, the devastators depart. Amen? So I want to encourage you. You, by your building disposition, you be the antidote to any attempt at devastation. You be that. You be the shipra. You be the pua. You be the, the midwife that ensures that the purposes of God for the sons of God thrive. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. The Lord bless you. No doubt at the Exodus, shipra and pua were probably long dead, but their spirit probably would have they could have been alive. We don't know for sure. Probably they were. If you do the match properly, we'll just check it out. The time scales. But you can't celebrate a Passover without the presence of these principles embedded within the fabric of that community. And so I want to encourage you. We are journeying. We're exiting a place of limitation into a place of inheritance. It's, going to be, it's a marvelous day in God. It's an enlightened day in the Spirit. Become somebody who is prolific, childbearing, joy with appearance, splendid, splendor, light. Become that in the Spirit. Position yourself before the Heavenly Father and say, Father, I want that for my own life and I want to be a midwife to birth sonship in others. I want to facilitate the bringing forth of, new, of a new sonship reality. In the house. I will not kill sonship. I will not discourage sonship. I will encourage it. For my own life and for that of others. Because God is going to release a firstborn sonship reality. As he takes the nation out of Egypt. But you can't take sons out if there are no sons. You need the shipwrecks and poors in the midst. Just look at me one second. You see, shipra and poor preserve them, preserve sons while under Egyptian bondage. Moses took the sons out out of that whole context. There's two different dynamics. One preserves, while they're in a place of inaccuracy, one preserves and positions them for the exodus. Moses comes along and he takes them out. But he has to disconnect from being a son of Pharaoh first before he releases God's firstborn out, out of Egypt. So you can't hope to, re, to help others in sonship 
if you in your life personally as a Moses have not disconnected from an inaccurate representation of sonship. The, di- the dimension from which you want to deliver people out from, you must have first disconnected from yourself. You first disconnect as a son, then you take them out. Not so? As a son of Pharaoh. And I want to encourage you. I just feel to say this in the spirit. Disconnect like Moses did. From a false semblance of fathering that parades itself as fathering, but is not authentic in the spirit. For unless you disconnect from that reality, you cannot operate yourself as a, as a poor and a, and a shipra. Right? So the realm, I'll say it again, the realm from which you seek to help people deliver, be delivered from, you must first experience deliverance yourself. Moses had to disconnect from Egypt before he leads people out from Egypt. Amen? He's empowered to do so. Bible says, not fearing the wrath of the king. I just, you know that verse is like my, been my favorite recently. It says, by faith Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Left Egypt. Amen? So may you come into that yourself. Lift up your hands. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord give you peace. The Lord give you abundant prosperity. The Lord make you a midwife in the spirit. The Lord uh, make you and, and develop and mature your own sonship in him. The Lord give you grace like you perform mighty hands, mighty works by the hands of Moses. May the Lord perform many mighty works by your hands too. May as he connected to the patriarchal promise in Abraham, may you too connect to a promise and a purpose bigger than you. May you in your time do mighty exploits. May you lead many out. Of limitation. Because you yourself have disconnected from that realm. May you come into your own in 2015. And may you become all that the Father has destined you to be. You are God's firstborn son. And so we say to every pharaohic system, let my son go that he might worship me. Let my son go that he might worship me. Amen. Amen.